So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the January 2016 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Borja Casillo from the Hospital Universitario Son Espaces and the Sibere COPD Research Program from Palma de Mallorca, Spain. He's here to discuss his article, Defining the Asthma COPD Overlap Syndrome in a COPD Cohort. Dr. Casillo, thanks for joining us. Thank you very and, much. And also, thank you for uh, allowing me to uh, uh, butcher my Spanish. Um, so I, I tried. <laughs> um, and then my next guest is Professor Peter Barnes from the National Heart, Heart and Lung Institute from Imperial College London in the United Kingdom. And he's here to talk about his accompanying editorial, Asthma and COPD Overlap. Peter, as always, thanks for uh, spending some time with us. Right. Thank you, Kyle. Good to speak to you. So... Guys, let's uh, let's actually. I like to set a framework, you know, a, a backdrop for our listeners. Um, you know, and, and, and it's going to be and the question is going to come out, you know, kind of silly in the sense of uh, meaning to be provocative in the sense of, you know, why do we really need this research? I mean, isn't something clearly COPD or clearly asthma? And of course, can't someone argue that you know, they're sort of one and the same because they both, you know, you treat them the same way and it's all the same inhalers and. You know, why do we even bother to make this distinction, and does it even matter? And so if it doesn't matter, how can there be even an overlap? And I recognize that's a very loaded question, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's meant to get the two of you talking. <laughs> so set the framework for us before we even talk about your work. Yeah, well, yes, can I just talk? Uh, I would say Please. that uh, asthma, COPD, the overlap is, is a clinical reality, but uh, I think we need this kind of research because uh, this, this kind of uh, patients have been neglected for, for refuting them in, in the clinical trials. So they are poorly studied, and we, we really don't understand much on, on what is going on in, this, in these patients. So I think that because this has uh, implications for therapy, I think it's a an interesting group of patients to study. Is it a large group? I mean, do we think, is this one of these problems that, you know, are, are we, is it a big problem? Is it a little problem? And I understand that's going to ultimately what your data helped to highlight as well. But, you know, is, are we looking after something that, you know, is people are more worried about and in reality doesn't even have a high number? Well, it's, I mean, uh, in, in our practice, in, in tertiary hospitals, in which we see a lot of COPD patients, uh, we demonstrate that we, around 15% of these patients may have this overlap. Uh, and this is, can be a, a really a problem because we don't have very clear guidelines to identify these patients. So uh, we think that with this set of, of uh, uh, criteria that we propose in this in this manuscript, we can help to identify these, these patients, and obviously we need to, to know more about them. But if we treat them uh, in, in a specific manner using inhaled corticosteroids, we can improve their prognosis, as we show here, which is uh, surprising, a bit surprising if we compare with previous cohorts of patients. Right. So, well, so I, Peter, I Peter, help expand here for us. Yeah, expand here for us. Well, I, I completely agree with Borja that we need to know more about these patients that have features of both asthma and COPD because traditionally they're excluded from clinical trials 
And until recently, we didn't even know how common this problem was. But we do know that asthma and COPD are usually very easy to distinguish in clinical practice because they have a different history, symptoms, and underlying pathogenesis. But both diseases are very common. So it's not surprising that some people would have both diseases. And I think this accounts for some of the patients that fall between the classical COPD and asthma. And as you may know, this asthma COPD overlap syndrome has recently become something very popular to discuss because it's called ACOS. And I think this is a very misleading terminology because this is not a syndrome as we usually think of a syndrome, but it's a collection of overlaps that we need to distinguish and identify. And I think what Borja's very important paper has identified is the prevalence of COPD patients that have features of asthma. But I think it's equally important to recognize that there are asthma patients with features of COPD. And these are not the same as the patients that Borja is talking about. But both groups of overlap have been neglected because they don't fulfill the criteria for inclusion in studies which have to be classical asthma or COPD. So we really do need more research on this overlap type of patient. So, so Borja, tell us, then let's take us through. Uh, with that, you know, there's clearly an issue here, and that was, that was, you know, sort of the thrust of my first question, which was to, you know, to outline that, you know, this, this is an area that does need to be studied because it does exist, and it also has been poorly studied. Um, tell us, then, what, you, what your group accomplished. Um, how did you go about, you know, defining things so that our listeners are able to better understand, um, you know, how you were defining this, this uh, disease state uh, um, and this overlap, and then what you found? Well, this is uh, an interesting story because uh, the first attempt to define this, this specific phenotype or this overlap um, was after a meeting that we had in Palma de Mallorca, and we uh, organized a meeting a few years ago uh, in order to discuss just the existence of these specific, specific kind of patients and we end up uh, just providing uh, a set of, of criteria that we could use to identify these uh, these patients. And these were, I mean, these criteria were published and adopted by the Spanish guideline uh, for the management of COPD. Um, we tried to use these uh, these criteria in this in this very well characterized cohort of COPD patients. And when we tried to apply these criteria that were, you know, agreed between the experts in, in the Spanish Society of Respiratory Medicine, uh, we, I mean, we found it, I mean, too much specific. So the number of patients that we could end up calling uh, overlap were very, very low. So we, we thought that maybe uh, we have to go on a step forward and because we had the new uh, Gina goal agreement on on this on this term, we we made it some specific, but some also some sensible criteria in order to define this. 
I agree. I fully agree with Peter that this is not. I mean, there is another. The, not the other extreme of these patients are the ones coming from the asthma uh, cohort. So that's why we we just in the title emphasize that this is something that coming from the COPD, uh, not from the asthma. So when when you discuss this this term with people. Uh, from the asthma field, they say, well, we, we have another overlap that you, don't, you are not including here. But from, coming from COPD patients, we, we found that this set of uh, uh, criteria were useful to, to identify them and, and to study them. So there's something to start with. And obviously, we need more research on this, but I think this is a good starting point to facilitate clinicians to recognize uh, this entity with very clear um, criteria because uh, the actual GINA goal uh, criteria, I think, and they are not very, very straightforward. So, so our listeners probably have a large cohort of COPD patients within their practice. What, what can they utilize to then contemplate that this is actually a COPD and asthma overlap, as as you guys defined it? So, because as we then talk about what you what you did discover, um, you know, both percentages and then some differential and, and outcomes, um, you know, there's definitely an argument that um, you know our listeners want to try to find these populations, and if nothing else, if they're participating in future clinical study, be able to say, yeah, I have, you know, I have 30 patients in my practice with this. This, you know, we could definitely be involved in a study. So, what, you know, what are what were your tools? What were your clinical tools to take the COPD patient um, and then be able to have someone define them also as having actually this this overlap? Well, uh, very very simple tools that the clinicians have very handy. I mean, we don't need um, sputum eosinophils to do this to make these criteria working. Uh, just a clinical history. A lung function and a blood test, and uh, and with that we can we can do a, a diagnosis, a proper diagnosis of of these overlap syndrome because we we just need to to check. And I mean, obviously there is if there is a history of asthma or uh, obviously with uh, patients with a smoking history, and then uh, if we have these clear COPD patients with chronic airflow limitation, if there are some, uh, well, as, as we mentioned in, in our criteria, uh, some sign of a, a, a very high bronchodilator response, more than 15% and, and 400 mils, or if they have two separate bronchodilator responses or blood eosinophils higher than 5%, this, I mean, should help you to to guide the, the diagnosis of, of this ACO. I agree also with Peter that we should start calling it ACO instead of ACOS. <laughs> Peter, what do you think? <laughs> well, I completely agree. I mean, we, it, it, I mean, calling it a syndrome makes you think it's an entity and that right. the COPD patients with asthma features are the same as asthma patients with COPD patients, and they're clearly not. Right. I mean, I think that what is important is to understand what the clinical relevance of this overlap is in terms of the natural history response to treatment and long-term outcomes. And as Borja said, we don't have enough research to answer those questions. But I think right. there is increasing evidence that if you have someone with 
COPD who has these features and in particular have increased blood or sputum eosinophils, then these patients will show some beneficial response to inhaled corticosteroids. Whereas most patients with COPD have little or no response to inhaled steroids. And so this could be a very important distinction because we can identify the people who benefit from steroids. And equally important, we can take people off inhaled steroids if they don't have these characteristics because we're learning more and more how inhaled steroids, particularly in high doses as usually used in COPD, can actually have adverse effects such as right. inducing diabetes, cataracts, hypertension, and infections like pneumonia, tuberculosis, and non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease. So we want to avoid steroids unless they're going to be beneficial. And that comes back to the kind of the first question I threw back when I said, you know, hey, what does any of this matter? Don't we just use the same inhalers and drugs for every one of these diseases? And I think what you're already obviously highlighting and alluding to is um, there's clearly evidence showing that not just for these individual diseases, but obviously this overlap, that we need to be a little more intelligent about defining our disease state so that in theory then we would be able to be more intelligent about our pharmaceutical management. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, as Borja has said, I mean, sputum eosinophils are difficult to measure in the clinical setting, but it's very easy to measure blood eosinophil counts, and they're part of the routine counts that family right. doctors are able to do. So this, this might be a very useful marker of the people who have this syndrome and may predict steroid responsiveness. Borja, you guys yeah. demonstrated a... Oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, please. No, please, go ahead. No, no, uh, my point is, I mean, I agree with Peter that this, this, I think this, this manuscript will help to, I mean, to guide therapy, I mean, because we are using, I mean, and we see that in, in primary care, we, we have more than 80% of patients using health corticosteroids, COPD patients, which is completely misleading. I think if we have uh, simple tools to identify the COPD patient that is, is more keen to respond to, to inhaled corticosteroids, we will uh, help a lot because we will reduce uh, the side effects of this therapy that is not being very useful in some other patients. I think one thing that needs to be worked out, Kyle, is what the cutoff for, for bloody eosinophils should be. And I completely yeah. agree with Borja's cut off of 5% because that's clearly abnormal. But many people, especially pharmaceutical companies that sell inhaled corticosteroids, are trying to argue for a much lower cut off, either 150, which is absolutely normal. That is not yeah. an abnormal count. So we, we, you know, we need to sort of see studies, prospective studies, where the steroid response is related to different cutoff points for bloody eosinophils. Yeah. Yeah. And I think 5% is really good. I, I would have said like 3 or 4% we could look at, but 5% I think is clear cut. Well, and also you used it as a, as a minor criteria, which you required too. So it wasn't just eosinophils in isolation. Sorry? Can you say that again? Or a, 
Or the, the, the eosinophils as a criteria. You know, your, your definition was it required one of the major criteria, which was either that profound bronchodilator responsiveness or the diagnosis of asthma, mm-hmm. or two of the minor criteria that you had to, that bloody eosinophils was clearly an important component to it, but that there were other necessary features that, um, to, to, to confirm this, uh, this diagnosis. Yeah, well, I think uh, there is evidence showing that uh, eosinophils, I mean, blood eosinophils can be a marker of response to, to therapy with helicorticoids. Absolutely. But you have to be cautious on that. I mean, if you see uh, table three in the manuscript, we, when we analyze eosinophils, uh, the cutoff of 3%, as Peter was saying, is completely nonspecific. I mean, in the in the no no overlap patients, the more than 700 patients, 26% of them may show some um, more than 3%. I mean, that could be normal. I mean, we have to be very specific on that. And, and I think I don't know if it should be a percentage of 5% or should be a, an absolute value of more than 3 or, or 400. I don't know. We think. Yeah. I agree with Peter. We need to to make more research on that because there should be some 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 point around that because more than five percent or more than three hundred or four hundred uh, cells per per microliter because otherwise we we could be considering normal people with with um, you know two uh, percent eosinophil count which is probably completely mm-hmm. normal. Yeah, I agree. And I think another thing which I mentioned in my editorial is that we should also consider a therapeutic trial of oral steroids, which I must say we do in our clinic very often when we're not sure if there's an overlap. And the the reason for doing this trial is to find the clinical response of the asthma component of COPD and I think this is still a very useful test, and it can easily be done in family practice. And it's important to decide whether a patient should be continued for the rest of their life on a treatment like inhaled steroids. Peter, how, how do you guys go about doing that in your practice? What's, the, what's just your brief methodology? Well, what the, we would world? normally do is, I mean, ideally, you want to give a placebo oral steroid, which we used to do, but it's difficult to get the placebo. But you, right. you would do four weeks of placebo and then four weeks of high-dose oral steroid, or you can even do two weeks. I mean, we would normally do four weeks of treatment. And then you monitor their lung function and ask them and record their symptoms. And these patients that have eosinophilic inflammation and COPD usually have a significant improvement in their lung function and symptoms when they're put on oral steroids. And then you know that those patients are steroid responsive and you can switch them to inhaled steroids. If you have absolutely no response, it's highly unlikely that they would benefit from inhaled steroids. Let me ask you um, both, you know, your paper, um, Borja, talked about, you know, 15% uh, within your, you know, very well-defined COPD population as having this overlap. Um, when, when you, obviously in your introduction, you talk about the prior studies that have shown a, a fairly broad range 
uh, of patients. And clearly, a lot of that's going to depend on the definitions, as, as you both have been talking about. You know, if we use eosinophils as our, as our marker of whether you have asthma or not, and if someone says, yeah, well, normal levels of eosinophils is asthma as well, you know, you could see someone saying that a COPD population has 50% asthma in it. Um, I, I'm, so the, the number that you, you know, your data shows at 15%, was that a number that either of you were surprised at? You thought it'd be higher? You thought it'd be lower? Um, it strikes me that your definitions that you're using, you know, as, as your criteria are, you know, are, are definitely, you know, conservative. They're not, you know, overly expansive and are going to uh, mistakenly capture, uh, you know, a, a normal. Um, at least that's what I was struck by. Well, uh... We were not surprised because um, previous reports, uh, as a COPD gene study, found a prevalence of 13%. Uh, so we are in keeping with those results, and these are these were also very well characterized COPD patients. So, right. in a way, uh, obviously, there you can. I mean, depending on on the population you are focusing, you you may have different percentage or different prevalence, but we thought that we should be, uh, and probably this is the, the real picture of, of, our, of our clinical practice. In fact, I mean, it sounds like we were discovering something really new, and every single clinician knows that always Ed can identify, a, you know, a proportion of patients, or COPD patients that may have this overlap, and, and we also thought that this COPD patient with very allergic features or very bronchodilator response could have some overlap, and we were more prone to treat these patients with, with inhaled corticosteroids compared to other very not so, I mean, not showing these, these characteristics. So I think this, I mean, the percentage may vary between 10, 15 percent, but uh, I'm sure that this is something that is not surprising because. In, in the real world, we we identify these patients even without them using any any specific criteria. I don't right. know, Peter, what do you think of it? Well, did you think it would be higher? You know that it's only fifteen percent, and you know maybe it was supposed to be thirty in your mind. Well, Peter, we we you? always used to say we always used to say ten to twenty percent because we never really knew that was. <laughs> I mean, that's why that's why the study is important. And See, Peter, you've and, always and been the, correct, Peter. You've always been correct. No, but this is this, this is this is right. You see, this turned out to be exactly in between. And I think, uh, and I think another study that that really supports what Borja has shown is the COPD gene group in a very large population found a prevalence of 13%. So very very similar. So I think this is probably right when you're looking at the COPD patients who have features of asthma. Now, what we don't know is the asthma patients with features of COPD because this is rather more complicated. Some of them have neutrophilic inflammation. Some will be smokers, and so they have neutrophilic inflammation linked to that. And some will have irreversible narrowing of their airways, which is a feature of COPD, but is also a long-term consequence of asthma. So it's more difficult to give a clear prevalence of asthma patients with a COPD overlap. Borja, can we talk about figure four, um, the Kaplan-Meier's cumulative survival that you demonstrated in your cohort, uh, the, the non-ACOS and the, versus the ACOS? And, and love to, you know, first of all, you know, in case the listeners haven't read the paper yet, 
uh, you know, describe to them the, the difference that you're seeing, and then um, uh, if you guys could both comment on, you know, what we think the relevance is and why. Yeah, I think this, this is the most surprising figure, I mean, and result of this of this work because. Um, we mentioned the COPD gene study before. They showed that patients with this overlap have worse prognosis, more exacerbations, and more hospitalizations. And we showed that these patients have better survival, which is, I mean, has never been shown before. But as we were discussing before, no patients have been properly studied, and they've been excluded from clinical trials. So this is the first evidence of something on the long-term effect of this, of these, I mean, on the long-term prognosis of these patients. Obviously, one year is probably not a, a very right. uh, good way to, to look at prognosis in these kind of patients, but this is a first signal that we should take into our consideration. How can we explain this result? Probably more than 60% of these patients were on inhaled corticosteroids, so this may be affecting... The, the prognosis because at baseline there were no differences between the two populations. So um, this is probably one of the explanations. Uh, other things like LAMAS or other treatments may also be interacting here. But this was our interpretation of the result. Well, and I think it, it does yeah, immediately I'm, argue further that we need further study in this group because at least if we just take just figure four alone, it, it says there's, you know, there's a potential for a differential in outcomes here, and that that group, this group, ought to be targeted differently. Then, right? I think it did helps. To, you know, I mean, it hasn't been, you know, like you said, one, yeah, well, one year, etc. That's important figure because, you know, the, these people who have the overlap are the lucky guys because there you can see steroids doing some something beneficial. So this result that Borja has shown in the study is exactly what I would have expected. And I was always surprised by those people who said that ACOS had a worse prognosis because, you know, they're the lucky COPD people that actually get benefit from yeah. steroids, whereas the other ones are the unlucky the ones because yeah. they get put on steroids and only get side effects. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I cannot be yeah. more agree with you. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's yeah. an excellent point. And exactly. In, in fact, you may even have some of that data on there because there was, uh, when you were looking at your patient differences, uh, your demographics, the, the ACOS group um, was it was almost statistically significant having a higher BMI, and the argument would be from the steroid effect, potentially, right? Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah, and probably you could find more stuff, Borja, if you went into, you know, the... the prevalence of diabetes, cataracts, and all that mm. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, we, so where we are we going next? signal on the sleep apnea as well. Where are we going Sleep apnea, snoring, and sleep apnea. Borja and Peter, where do you guys think we should go next with this work? I mean, where's, where's, what's the next step as far as to further, both further validate this? I mean, I would argue between your data and then from COPD gene that, that, that you know, we've got a population that clearly exists. We can maybe slice and dice the numbers, but there is, you know, there's a sizable patient population out here that, you know, based on your data, Borja, you know, has um, a differential outcome that's measurable that would imply, and it's, and it's measurable to determine who they are, 
Um, it, it's clear it's time to study this group in a, in a differential way than a standard COPD or in a standard asthmatic. Well, uh, we've taken the next step because, as Peter was mentioning, there was there is another overlap: the the asthma patients with features of COPD, and we we right. have designed a study uh, with four groups of patients. So, we taking patients with chronic airflow limitation uh, and the previous history of COPD. We have um, recruiting have been recruiting patients with with these characteristics and more than 300 eosinophils in the blood count or less than 300 eosinophils in the blood count. And in the other arm, we have been recruiting asthma patients with a history of smoking or without a history of smoking. So we will have um, the two overlaps uh, that we have been discussing and also the pure um, eosinophilic asthmatic and, and the pure COPD with no um, no mixture of, of inflammation here. So we may uh, be able to, to distinguish the specific characteristics in this, in this kind of patients. So this, this is something that we have been, I mean, we are running now this study. We are in the middle of the recruitment phase, and we hope to have some results to communicate soon. Fantastic. What um so we've been talking for a little bit and I want to be respectful of your guys' times. What 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 haven't we talked about or what what you know issue uh, or what have I missed in your paper <laughs> that we need to highlight? Well, uh, I will emphasize that uh, this is uh, a clinical reality, as 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 Peter states in his editorial, uh, uh, and I think that well, this is the first step to understand it. A bit better, so because the implications for therapy are uh, so important, we think that uh, we, this this set of easy to use clinical criteria could be uh, something to be useful for for the clinician. Well, I I think also we, I mean now these patients have been quite well defined in the study, it's important to find out more about their characteristics. So I'd like to know more about their detailed physiology, their amount of emphysema versus small airway disease, and also to look at longer term follow-up, to look at the type of exacerbations they get. Are they different between these two groups, which they probably should be? And so it's time to really start looking in more detail at, at the clinical characteristics and natural history of these patients, as well as their differential response to therapy. Borja, I'm curious, was, was alpha-1 antitrypsin genotyping done on this patient cohort? Uh, yeah, well, it was determined, yeah. But the, okay. we have a very low, very, I mean, there is no uh, a specific uh, phenotype on, on this. I mean, the, in the seven, in the eight hundred patients, there was yes. no um, a deficit of uh, okay. alpha one antitrypsin. Great, great. Well, guys, if there's nothing more to add, I, I, I want to. I'll bring it to a close. But this was a fantastic discussion, and, and uh, congratulations, Mora, for for helping to 
you know, bring uh, more evidence to, to, as Peter said, something what we, you know, you, you, if you're in a clinical practice, you've seen this, you know it's here, but, but how to define it and how to quantify it. And then now to take it to the next step, and it's what Peter just highlighted, you know, what, how does this make you different in what way? Like, what, you know, in both exacerbations, rate of emphysema, and does it automatically mean we need to be changing our drug management? I think it clearly does demonstrate that, but now we can define this population better. Maybe it's time to actively study this population better, and particularly when we start to talk about uh, drug interventions. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. Well, guys, thank you. It was a great conversation. And uh, both of you, I know uh, you had to rearrange your schedules, and you're, you're working a little bit later as we're recording this, so I appreciate that, uh, that you're being so flexible with your time. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, you made it nice and convenient for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much, Kyle. Very interesting discussion.